I also felt very, very quickly a Bob Belcher, Jimmy Pesto vibe between them. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it even yeah. to the point that like Liev Schreiber was always kind of tailing Pascal around like he was uh, Trev or whatever his name, the bartender yeah. is. Um, That's amazing. That makes me so happy that <laughs> you brought that up. It, it made me laugh a little bit thinking about Bob sleeping with Jimmy Pesto's wife and like Jimmy <laughs> Pesto Jr. being his half son. Wow, you went into a deep like <laughs> other world for yeah. this. I, I think that maybe you need to write some Bob's Burgers fan fiction. <laughs> you stop at pancake though. It's tomato soup. Potatoes. Does she care for almonds? And the apples, mm. one of those next. Chocolate lava cake is not just undercooked chocolate cake. Lemon pepper wet? Put your sister's meat back. I don't want it. Cigarettes and coffee, man. That's a combination. So what's our movie this week, Becky? Big Night, which is co-written and co-directed by Stanley Tucci, who also stars in it, along with Campbell Scott. I think Campbell Scott wrote, oh. co-wrote it too. He might, or maybe he was one of the co-directors. Or maybe they did both. The guy who's the car oh. salesman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. That's fun. I, did, I didn't know Tucci uh, was so involved beyond, obviously, the main character. I also thought somehow in my head had the impression that this movie was made in like the mid eighties. Yeah, me too. So, <laughs> there's a point in the film when they were discussing how Americans don't understand or appreciate risotto. Mm -hmm. And I was like, mm, when did that shift happen? I guess if this is like an eighties film, that sort of makes sense that like Americans were unaware of, a dish like risotto but i feel like actually the mid 90s that makes a little less sense like well, when, when the, did that really take off here i have no idea but the movie is set in the 50s oh it is yeah okay okay yeah that makes more sense hence all i of noticed all of the cars yeah um, <laughs> but i i just thought that it was like he could only afford old cars oh and then the yeah. He was obsessed with like old elegance with the Cadillacs. I I would actually really love it if um there was a <laughs> if there was a seaside town in New Jersey that had just been a time capsule for the 50s and 90s. <laughs> and somehow Louis Prima was still alive then. Yeah. They, only in the context of that town. It was like a temporal <laughs> warp or something. Yeah, I guess that was another indicator. I, I personally was unaware of uh, Louis Prima's music, so I didn't. Oh, it only it only made sense in terms of everybody's re reactions to the news about him. I see, but I couldn't place him culturally personally. Yeah, so. I am very much aware of him, but I am <laughs> sure. very much of a. Uh, not only do I like jazz and. 
big band music, I'm also an Italian American. So like, you know, <laughs> right. it's culturally his, relevant. Yes. His, ver his version of Bonacera is something that I have listened to and say <laughs> many a times <laughs> while stereotypically <laughs> making, uh, you know, like a ragu sauce. <laughs> yeah yeah you gotta you you gotta go that extra step to really get in touch with your ancestors mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> I, I read somewhere that um he decided to make the film because he was like i wanted to be act in a movie where i would have a good part because i guess he right. was never really hired or you know cast as leads so he yeah and this is like his passion project yeah and you can see like from all of the actors that are in it like i i'm pretty sure he like was like hey all of my friends come make a movie with me because yeah. there were yeah. like the cast is stellar yeah really recognizable like character actors or just like big stars that were playing roles that weren't like necessarily huge and right. I have to say, when when the opening credits came up for the film. <laughs> I was going to mention this, too. The first image of the film is. Uh, is Mark Antony. <laughs> or Anthony, I should say. But yeah, I, I think oh, that's the first thing that I wrote down in my notes for the film was Mark <laughs> Anthony. I got Same really here. excited because I don't really know a tremendous amount about his like career in general. I think at this point yeah. he's most famous for singing and having been married to Jennifer Lopez. But I do remember after becoming aware of him because of his singing career, watching movies that I watched earlier in my life and being like, oh shit, Mark Anthony is in Hackers. And yeah. <laughs> seeing this is like, I yeah. like what came first, the singing or the acting career? Yeah, it may be one of those things that like they they grew concurrently, but one hit before the other. Mm. Um, or I know he like I the only the only film that I could really specifically place him him on was Man on Fire, but he was already like a superstar at that point. Um, was that and so I just had figured that that was a Denzel Washington oh, Tony Scott film. Okay, because I know that he was in a movie where um, Nick Cage played uh, like an EMT or a or a, an ambulance driver. Yeah, bringing out your dead or bring out the dead. <laughs> I so would like it if Scorsese it was film. if it was the Monty Python sketch, <laughs> a part of uh, <laughs> of the Holy Grail. It was just called Bring Out Your Dead. <laughs> yeah um yeah that was a scorsese film one of the last Ooh. real serious roles that cage did before he just accepted his fate as like b-movie god uh maybe but i feel like adaptation was released after that yeah i don't i don't, I don't know the exact order of that um but it was it was right around the same time i, I there was it was very weird to me because like I, I have been aware of this movie for a while, and this is my first time watching it, which seems mm. odd in the fact that, like, I really do enjoy Stanley Tucci's work a lot. And because yeah. of, um, you know, my my family and ethnic background, like, we have <laughs> consumed a lot of movies about Italian-Americans and a lot of movies about food. Um, yeah. 
but it was just something that I never really got around to. And I think that from the previews that I had seen of it, it was like, I was like, I know what this movie is pretty much, but uh, it, I definitely had, it had, like, I had a feeling that it was a movie from the eighties. Um, and yeah, I don't know what that impression was. And then when I saw Minnie Driver's name in the credits, I was like, oh, baby, Minnie Driver. <laughs> but then it turns out that, no, she was she was a full-ass adult. Right. I mean, that was like, okay, so the two things that I thought when the opening credits rolled were, they're not actually going to have Ian Holm play an Italian, are they? <laughs> um, and I was proven yep. wrong very <laughs> upon his appearance and I was mm. absolutely shocked by it. Bite your teeth into the ass of life! Um, and then... Yeah, there's a there's a couple of those. Well, like Mark, uh, Mark Anthony as well. And they, they didn't give him a lot of dialogue and so it was probably easier to sell him as an Italian. But his face is so identifiable that like now looking back on the film you're just like oh that's not right <laughs> yeah it's kind of like how anthony quinn played zorba the greek and also um uh he was one of the people in lawrence of arabia playing an arab <laughs> and you're right. like what or or how to me how upsetting it was trying to watch the irishman and have the Irishman be played by Robert yeah. De Niro. And you're like... Blue-eyed De Niro. You, yeah, you can put <laughs> fake contacts or actual contacts on this guy, but it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, and then, <laughs> then also... Anyways, going back to the previous point was like seeing Minnie Driver's name come up and being like, oh no, some guy is going to do her dirty in this because it seems like that's the role... <laughs> Like younger in in her like earlier in her career, she played like women that you know yeah. were mistreated or unappreciated by the men in their lives, and then like you know like in the case of Goodwill Hunting, there's the goes and gets her back right. aspect of the, it, the, and the I the rom com conflict. Yeah, I was really really hoping that that didn't happen in this movie so i was i was glad that it didn't yeah well and i i also like in that she had a really nice like one of my favorite scenes in the movie was the scene between her and isabella rossellini oh yeah when she had drunk too much mm -hmm. and they're chatting thank you take deep breaths <clears throat> you know how they get you these people men boys They make you think they have secrets they will tell. But they have nothing to tell. And then they talk. And they talk, 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 and they keep talking. And what do they say? Nothing. Right. And then they smoke. And then they talk some more. And then that's that. I don't know, just two equals sort of recognizing that they're not competitors and it's not their fault. And they are, should be allies rather than enemies. Yeah, I mean, I or guess at least on on Rossellini's side, because I guess Minnie Driver didn't realize who she right. was yet. I think that she was aware of the awkwardness the situation might present if they were in a room together, right? But like, I don't yeah. know when you see her. The only time that she's kind of like acts upset about the fact that uh, you know of Minnie Driver being in a relationship with 
with um, Stanley Tucci is after like Stanley Tucci sleeps with Isabella Rossellini and like it's evident that this is an affair that's been going on for a while and she's like oh, okay yeah go back to your girlfriend but I think that like part of that is from the fact that you know she pr- pretty much says that the only reason she's with Pascal which is actually Ian Holm who I will refer to <laughs> as Ian Holm for the rest of this podcast Ian Holm like is rich and so he gives her status and a comfortable lifestyle but like I think she also realizes that Secundo is like he's not going to commit to Phyllis or Mini Driver so the idea that like he has to go back to her she's it's kind of like it's it's laughable because pretty much what would happen is that he he would probably drag his like his feet around for a while and she would eventually break up with him or if they yeah. married like he'd keep he'd, philandering yeah he'd still keep having the affair so i yeah. think i but i i did really like that moment of them like coming together and bonding over that because at yeah. up to that point like as a viewer i found all of the men incredibly frustrating <laughs> Yeah, so they they leaned a little hard. It's it's difficult because there's a lot to love about this movie, and it was very very good. And the characters were rich, but also in some very pronounced ways, very stereotyped, yeah, like cliched. And the men fulfilled sort of stereotypical roles of Italian men in ways that were kind of. Uh, disrespectful maybe culturally no, like, there weren't any gangsters or whatever but like Segundo being such a cheat and philanderer with women felt like negative stereotypes of, of sort of Italian men and Italian culture and I wanted it not to be that way because everything else about his character was so nuanced and thoughtful but you know there are real men in the world who do that so um. <laughs> yeah I, I i found this movie to be like for me strange tonally i don't know if yeah. like I, I i was trying to figure out like how i was going to put that into words before we started recording because similar to what you said there are these moments of like really big reactions that like kind of skew more towards that even though it doesn't center around a wedding centering out around a restaurant and being the italian version of my big greek fat greek wedding you know what i mean um exactly but it was also that there were all of these really quiet moments in between or moments that where there were no dialogue and it was just visuals um and yeah that to me like while that seems more true to life was also like it it didn't seem like it was from this the same film and i found it confusing like it was jarring like seeing somebody very silently chop up like garlic or whatever and then it cuts to tony shalhoub screaming in a barber's shop rape rape that is what goes on in that place every I I guess like I I found like 
Tony Shalhoub's character frustrating because, you know, um, and yep. maybe this is the point of it because of the fact that he was he was so pig headed about his food. Right. And to him, his pride was more important than whatever their financial situ- like yeah. situation or their financial survival would be. And then. Like in a way, maybe he he was trying to run the business into the ground so he could have an excuse just go, to go back to Italy or whatever. But then, to me, it was frustrating that for what it it seemed to evolve into for Stanley Tucci's character was that he wanted to be like more open to tr- having that bastardized like Italian American food, and in the end, it seemed more like. So for for money and so he could get a profit, which I I felt the most in that scene where Campbell Scott was trying to sell him the Cadillac car. Like yeah. his his goal for coming to America, which a lot of people, uh, a lot of people who come here or and anyone that lives here who buys into the capitalist system, like the whole thing is to work really hard so you can get ahead and and be rich and have all the toys. But that in combination with the scene in the car between him and Minnie Driver, where seemingly he's saying that he can't, it seemed, at first I thought the conversation was about sex, about how like he, he couldn't have sex with her. And then right. it turned into what well, kind of without saying it, like I can't really do this because I want to marry you, but I don't, I can't right now because I don't have the money, but it, in the end, it yeah. just feels like one of those empty excuses to not commit. Yeah, I think I think it, I think it's uh, what they what I read from it was the there's this idea of with like specifically Italian men, but old world men generally of like different categories of women, and for the kind of woman that you do intend to eventually marry and spend a life with, there is a proper way to treat someone like that and so i think part of that conversation about not uh, letting things get too hot and heavy was that he wasn't ready to have casual sex with her because she was someone that he wanted to pursue kind of a long-term relationship with this is very much fellini-esque in terms of like the madonna whore mother sister cousin right right so he can he can he can sleep with Isabella Rossellini because that relationship is an escape for both of them from the rigors and stresses of their real lives. I think this is how he views it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the mini driver relationship was like the one that he was maybe betting on going long term. But to do that, he had a lot of pride wrapped up in sort of making it first as as a restaurateur or whatever. And he felt like he wasn't there. And so there's this conflict of like, well, I can't I can't treat you the same way that I treat Isabella Rossellini. Can I have casual sex with you because you're going to be my wife someday, maybe. But I can't take that step until I'm a success in America. Otherwise, I'm, I'm a failure and I'm not, you know, it's a, it's a distraction from me achieving my goals career wise. I, I found um, my my reading of his character was in terms of romance was was he was kind of regressive and misogynistic and holding on to a lot of sort of old world ideas about masculinity and well yeah i would agree with that but i still think that all of 
everything that you're saying seems like it's true to the character, but I also think that it's all in an attempt of an excuse actually not to, but actually have a real commitment with someone in a relationship, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I, I, I like the contrast between him and Primo. Yeah. In that regard where Primo is like, uh, just as dysfunctional, but in the other direction where he can't even ask this woman that he sees all the time to come to his restaurant to have dinner for an event because he's crushing on her so hard. And like he's the, clearly their interaction is so underdeveloped yeah, that she's totally unaware of his feelings, but all of his friends know about her and the role that she plays in his fantasy life. And so like he, he you know, he's he's a 15 year old boy in terms of romance and Segundo is, uh, you know, like a player. Yeah, I I have to say, though, like I really enjoyed his interactions with Allison Janney, the yeah. the flower the vendor flower that he w- was um, crushing on. Like, I-, I think that she's she's amazing. Yeah. So amazing. And um, like, you know, what I know her from primarily is playing CJ Craig on the West Wing, where she's just like a fucking she's a badass i love that character so much but like it was nice to see her have a sense of like kind of that that character like she plays a widow but someone that's like self-assured and controlled but then like when when she comes to this the the party able like to let her hair down and like experience the the really great food and and you know enjoy herself no taste Ooh. Oh my god. Oh my god. He's good, huh? You like? Oh my god. Oh my god, he's right. See? Now you know. To eat good food mm-hmm. is to be close to God. See? Uh, you know what they say? Uh, to know God, to know. To have the knowing, the knowing? Knowledge. Knowledge? Knowledge. See, the knowledge of God is the bread of angels. I'm never sure what that means, but it's true anyway. (laughs) And the interactions that she was having with Primo in the kitchen, it was kind of like one of the few scenes of genuine connection between people in the film. Like, I think they happened between the brothers at the end of the movie. It happened between her yeah. and Primo and then Isabella Rossellini and Minnie Driver. Um, I thought Isabella- there, there was a few moments too. There was a moment or two between, I mean, it, it was definitely like antagonistic, uh, but I think that um, Pascal and Segundo had a moment like that in his office before Pascal made it like a power move discussing what it's like to be an entrepreneur and what it takes to make it as an Italian in America. Like, it felt like there was a little bit of something. May I say something that I learned without being too big, you know? A guy goes out to eat in the evening after a long day in the office, whatever. He doesn't want on his plate something that he has to look and think, what the fuck is this? Uh, you know, no, right. What do you want is, hey, a steak. This is a steak. I like a steak, you know? 
Mmm, I'm happy. Uh, you, you, you see what I mean? Don't, but don't get me wrong. I think no. that your, your brother is good goddamn chef. Maybe the best I ever see. He is the best. Yes, but this is what I have to say to you. Give to people what they want. Then later you can give them what you want. I also felt very, very quickly a Bob Belcher, Jimmy Pesto vibe between them. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it even yeah. to the point that like Liev Schreiber was always kind of tailing Pascal around like he was uh, Trev or whatever his name, the bartender yeah. is. Um, That's amazing. That makes me so happy that <laughs> you brought that up. It, it made me laugh a little bit thinking about Bob sleeping with Jimmy Pesto's wife and like Jimmy Pesto Jr. being his half son. Wow, you went into a deep, like, <laughs> other world for yeah. this. I've, I think that maybe you need to write some Bob's Burgers fan fiction. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, so uh, yes, I think there's a whole, like, fantasy world where Tina has a crush on her her half-brother. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to stray too much, but, like, do have we ever met Jimmy Jr.'s mom? no. I don't think Mrs. Pesto has ever come up in an episode before. Yeah. That feels weird. It like does. A, a, there's some point to that omission that the show hasn't actually made yet. You know, I know that hardly anyone listens to this podcast and I have no voice <laughs> acting experience. But if anyone knows anyone from Bob's Burgers, I would happily voice uh, Lady Pesto. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, and like... Uh, so now that I have this fanfic version where Bob is cuckolding Jimmy. Um, oh, I feel so bad for Linda. I would. I, well, yeah. That, so that sucks there, too. But I I would want Pesto's wife not to be a goof like Pesto, but like. An Isabella Rossellini type. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She was fucking amazing <laughs> in this movie. I love her so much. But like yeah. in this, it was like that part was really nothing. And she like did so much there with were it. yeah i think i think it wasn't necessarily nothing but i think it was a sort of cliched role that and and i'm sure some of this was in the script but a lot of it was her where there was like an awareness of everything that was going on around her that yeah. no one else could see right that only only she had Pascal, gracias. baby I am, yeah. listen, I am for you like uh, one of those things, uh, you know, we, with the lights. What? Now that means the ship, with uh, the ships in the storm, with the lights. What? What do you call? I don't know. The lighthouse. The lighthouse. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I am for you. If it rain, you look for me. I show you the way home. Okay. Suppose he doesn't want to go home. Maybe he doesn't want to come home. He's in the fucking rain. Some people like the rain. Gabriella, go check the menus, please. And then like the bond over, like her talking about going out west. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been to the west? Out west? Mm -hmm. Yes. Really? They say it's beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Very beautiful. A little too vast for me. To what? Vast. Spacious. Big. Oh, vast. Yeah. How do you feel? I feel better. You want a puff? So you prefer it here east? Yeah, I do. I see. Maybe I should go out west. Find a cowboy with a horse, the old thing. What do you think? 
<laughs> a cowboy. Yeah, I want one. Strong. Silent. Like a statue. Cool. Always there. Cowboys are consistent. Felt a lot like the Cadillac salesman conversation with Segundo. Mm. Are you uh, in the market? Um, what? Good looking fellow like you should have a good looking car like this. <laughs> well, we all should have a lot we don't have. Huh? I detect an accent. Where are you from? I'm Italian. Mm. Just visiting and move here for good? I will never go back. It was a history, huh? In Italy, there is nothing but history. <laughs> Funny. Beautiful place, though, Italy. Yes, it is. You been? No, never. Here, get in. Oh, well, I Go don't ahead. know. I really can't, but... Well. Oh, boy. Wow. Beautiful, huh? Yes, this is, boy, beautiful. Real leather trim, full air. Uh-huh. Yes. This is the new one. This is this year's car. No, this is next year's. Next year's? Wow, boy. This year, you buy next year's car, and next year, next year, come out already again. Them both being, like, big dreamers, but life sort of squashing that a little bit. Oh, I've, I... And so I think there were, like, echoes of, of that between them, and that was part of why they worked as a sort of affaired couple. That's interesting, you seeing a parallel in that. For, for me, like, obviously, yes, like... For anyone who is like, who, who is the first iteration who's actually immigrated to America, like, yeah, the, the idea of, of having financial stability, there's no way that you could comprehend how much mental space that take would take up in somebody's head, you know, um, and those aspirations. I just like, I guess... For me, the conversation that Segundo was having with the the car salesman, that just seems like him being charmed by a car salesman. Like, you know what I mean? He was sure. buying into that pitch so hard. It was like, as soon as Campbell Scott was in the car, like talking to him, I was like, he's gonna play this guy like a fucking fiddle. <laughs> and I really thought that, I thought that um, Segundo was gonna buy that car without any money, but like somehow get it on credit and, and like right. really fuck up their financial situation by getting that without Louis Prima. Like, spoiler alert, Louis Prima doesn't come to the restaurant. <laughs> Actually, we should say that beforehand. This is a story about a rest, restaurant tours uh, and the, sh the head chef, whose brother, who's the brother that's named Primo, meaning first. What's your name? Secondo. Mm. Pleasure. Secondo, like second. Yes. Who's the first, your pop? No, my brother. Yeah, so that that was huge. Like, I, I laughed I so shocked. hard when they revealed that. <laughs> I was shocked that they went so far to be that literal, that yeah. he, his name is first, the second boar's son named is second. And also like when you go through the courses traditionally of a, a Italian meal, there's like an anti antipasti, uh, primi, sugundi. So like, it's also yeah. like the names of <laughs> Italian meals or coursing. I, I, I was half expecting, I guess he was just a, a local Italian immigrant 
who they hired, but I was half expecting Mark Anthony to be named Trezo. <laughs> or like, no, you know what I mean? It would be better if it if it skipped over and went to Venti and it was just 20. <laughs> <laughs> and then he could have a, he could also be associated with Frappuccino sizes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, I guess like, Sorry, I totally got derailed from the original point that I was trying to make about that they were trying to save their restaurant that was doing poorly seemingly because the um, the food is traditional Italian food, which nobody in America or in this area understands. And right. At, and right across the street, there's a very popular Italian-American restaurant that's run by Ian Holm and his wife. Uh, Isabella Rossellini, and they, Ian Holm offers to hook him up with Louis Prima, and then word will get out that Louis Prima ate amazing food at this restaurant, and everyone will want to come to it. Yeah. And then it turns out that Ian Holm never set that up. Yeah, it was just, Ian Holm was just trying to get an in to start a relationship with Primo, uh, Segundo's older brother, who is like master chef. It, it felt like he was just trying to set up that relationship so that he could poach him and I, increase his restaurant's sort of status by having a like super badass chef. I thought that like it, he did it on purpose because he knew that they were after after Segundo asked for the loan from him and he said he couldn't do that. That he knew yeah. that they were in such a dire a dire situation financially that he decided to like come up with this idea so they would sink all of their money into a really extravagant meal. And then the only option they would have would be to come and work for him. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, I also, there, there's that moment at the end where Ian Holm and Segundo have a like heart to heart. You ruined me. Because of a woman? Please, I could be serious. Why? Because I wanted to save you. And then we would go with you? Where else would you go? What I did, I did out of respect. It's a great investment, you know, your brother. You too, of course. You will never have my brother. He live in a world above you. What he has and what he is is rare. You are nothing. I'm a businessman. I'm anything I need to be at any time. Tell me, what exactly are you? And I fucking love, I mean, it, it's weird that Ian Holmes playing an Italian, but I love him as an actor, as his ability to nail little moments mm. so sophisticatedly and so, like, honestly, where he's just like, I was trying to help you. And his justification, I think because it was Ian Holmes, his justification and reasoning behind trying to help him in that moment felt honest, even if it was, like, deluded. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, I mean, it, it's... 
one of those things where obviously he's doing it to help his own situation, but then it's very easy for people in the process of trying to do something selfish to write into their narrative that actually I'm helping you and they genuinely believe that. And I, I think that probably like, you know, Ian Holmes' character probably genuinely did care for Segundo in a kind of like of like a mentor or just a peer or somebody right. that understood his experience. But there's also like, even though it's never explicitly said, like he is an extremely well off man who is running an Italian restaurant in New Jersey. And there is a scene where one of the server or one of the cooks in his kitchen is running out of the kitchen <laughs> with yeah. on fire while he, while Ian Holm and Liev Shriver kind of are chasing him out menacingly. Right. So right. I like that to me was like a way to hint that like they're not they might be crooked. There might be some organized crime stuff going on. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Or or that like he's his plans for Primo and Segundo are set in motion at this point, and he's been you know he he doesn't need to put up with his idiot chef anymore. Oh, I didn't. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't read it that way at all. I, yeah, no. I mean, I think it's. I think the mafia read is interesting, um, and it makes it makes Liev Schreiber make more sense. Yeah, that he's always just like hanging around. That he's like muscle or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's, rather than just like some idiot employee. Yeah, that's that's kind of how that's how I interpreted it. I just like and then also I think that part of what like was supposed to have made their biz this business successful was that it was food that was accessible not just to Italian people but to right. or Italian Americans it was accessible to like people like any kind of person that would want to eat at an Italian restaurant. So like, it makes sense because it's like marinara sauce, spaghetti and meatballs, maybe sausage and peppers, like that kind of stuff, as opposed to like having, or like he said, having beefsteak instead of having like a, a seafood risotto or like a right. like a soup that's a, a clear brodo with like minimal amount of ingredients. And I, I didn't think that he, I don't know. It was one of those things that was like, I, I didn't think that he necessarily wanted to change his restaurants in terms of how they were cooking, but I think he liked Segundo and could see grooming him to do something business-wise. And then yeah, I maybe. think that he did appreciate the talent of Primo. Right. You know, he he could use him somewhere, but I, I can't imagine him being like, come to my restaurant and cook the food that you're cooking now because like the other thing that is yeah i I, I didn't necessarily mean that i just meant like because definitely he seems like a domineering dude who wouldn't let his chefs or his head chef or whatever write the menu Mm. but he also was a man of taste and recognized primo's brilliance and i think maybe wanted to like use it within certain limits or whatever yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I just like the other thing that's like uh, that I guess I would question is that like they're in a town, they're in a seaside town in New Jersey. And my assumption would be at that point that there would be a decent amount of Italian Americans living there that <laughs> right. would understand that food. Right. 
and even if right because yeah the proximity to new york is insane i mean and, and the population in new jersey is huge <laughs> too right. you know so it's like right. the, well yeah it's the 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 italian immigration to new york area and yeah. then the spillover and all the surrounding states right so like i think that it it would be strange like that the only person that consistently showed up to the restaurant was a painter <laughs> the, who the could only paint pay in paintings which yeah. if that's the case then how could tony shalhoub not know that they were about to <laughs> be foreclosed on <laughs> I don't know. I think there was a so this is a uh, it was a choice by Stanley Tucci to do a movie about food instead of about traditional art or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think in in the same way that Chef is like um, John Favreau processing his experiences as a filmmaker. I did feel like this was a bit of filmmakers sort of projecting their view of craftsmanship and their dreams into a, another medium that was a little more accessible mm. or just different so that it didn't feel egotistical. So like Primo is, you know, the insane auteur who his passion and his craft is more important than everything else. And like thinking about business distracts him from the craft side of things. And so he doesn't do it. But luckily he has a brother yeah. who can focus on the business side, still has an appreciation for the craft, but right. leans a little bit more towards prioritizing the business end of things because that's going to further his sort of goals and aspirations. And and of course, it's also how they survive as well. Right. Um, right. Yeah, that's interesting because like, it also did seem like, you know, his character didn't necessarily want to change the menu so much as like to be something like spaghetti and meatballs and all the starch that white people can eat. Um, <laughs> is that like that um, it was more like actually there's some kind of there's conscious things that we can do to make our business a little bit more profitable and cutting out the most expensive least ordered right. dish is probably the way to go. Right, um, Ra rather than like, well, it's like he had that comment. Louis Prima at our place tonight. Boom, the best fish. What's the matter with you? Are you sick? People should come just for the food. I know. Primo, I need your help here, okay? Louis Prima is coming. He's not just some guy. He's famous. Famous. Is he good? Uh, he's great. People should come just for the food. I know that. They should come just for the food. I know that. I know. But they don't. And like that, that clearly is like he's out of touch, right? Like right. that the way the world works is through marketing and through things like that kind of stunt. And so a chef that's that bigoted about about his priorities uh, needs to bend. And I think his arc over the film generally was sort of accepting that idea. But I think it, it wanted to play fair, or at least my read was it wanted to play fair to both sides. And Ian Holm sort of stood as what Segundo could become mm -hmm. if he gave in too far to his business instincts. And so like there was a push and pull tension between the brothers to sort of uh, move in each other's directions, but not compromise themselves either. Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's it's interesting because um, if you if you look online at 
about the movie, it says that it's a romance drama, which, like, I don't know if I would necessarily <laughs> call it a romance. I would call it more yeah. of a drama with, like, some kind extreme comedic moments. <laughs> um, but yeah, well, it's 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 more like a. a family love story like yeah you know, I, I think two brothers that's the thing that's like even though it's not outwardly and obviously expressed in the film like the tragedy of like have two people who who have lived with each other and had a goal for so long and then what they really want in life deviates and not yeah. being able to let go of the past so that they can move on to what they really want Right. And maybe like, you know, distangle themselves from each other. Yeah. Well, they couldn't. Right. Like the structure of their dreams was too intertwined to separate, actually. And so, like, what's the tension between I need you to achieve my goals, but you also need to adopt my way of thinking more. Yeah. Right. Like Segundo couldn't do. I mean, he seemed like a a good chef in his own right, but he couldn't do what Primo could do and vice versa. Primo couldn't run a fucking restaurant. He doesn't know the logistics of that. He doesn't care about that. No. I mean, I think that's, but like his, in his heart, what he really wanted to do was be in Rome at his uncle's restaurant, you know? Right. Brother like car, Segundo? <laughs> no, my brother, uh, he does not even drive. Well, some people prefer to walk. I tell you, my brother make one ride from Italy to America. And I guess that's enough rides for him, you know? Maybe when they said, when Segundo says like, we came over here to do this and climb up the ladder, like maybe Segundo was the one that convinced him. And like you, like you said, like yeah. the idea of um, being able to, if you're, if you're an artist or a craftsperson, just being able to, like work on your your craft and have that be it like that struck structure in his uncle's restaurant because you know what i mean like he would be able to be a chef cooking the food that he wanted to do because it's proper italian food and then he wouldn't have to worry about the business side of things because the family member was taking care right. of it but because they were like stanley tucci was also not capable of using the resource that he had and having the ability to like like market or create a restaurant that was successful you know right you know i always say at least in the context of my own career like it doesn't matter if i made the best wine in the world if nobody buys it it doesn't matter so yeah. it's like you also either have to hone your branding sales your sales skills which is like and i know that in the 50s nobody thought about branding in the way that we do now but at the same time yeah. like you lo looked across the street at Pascal's and like, you know, there's flashing lights. There's like, there's, it, it's, it's the lighting is like over the top. And like, even when you, when Segundo walks in, like there was, there was part of me that like was taken back to like swingers, which I feel like <laughs> might have come out. I don't know if it was 1996 or 1998, but like, you know, you walk into that one they walk into that one bar and then there's the couple that's like playing music in the corner. 
at that yeah. famous club in LA. But it was like, you know, there's music there. And then you he walks in to the back room and Pascal is uh, flambéing something, which like ba- at that time, like table side service in that way where people were like making um, Caesar salads table side or flambéing desserts or like yeah. uh, or um, like, you know, roast um, meats and stuff like that. That was part of what the dining experience was it was also like a show so like right. if 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 segundo was actually like savvy he could figure out a way to make that food feel like that and make that environment feel like you know what i mean yeah i, I think i think he tried a little bit like it's not the same thing as like uh, flambéing a dish at the table, but he brought the timpano to the table to yeah. do the like unveiling and the cutting so that it was a thing because this was this special, unique recipe that was only theirs, right? Right. But I also got the feeling like that that was part of what this special event was. Whereas if you like, obviously this wouldn't Yeah, maybe. I mean, it, he probably had, wouldn't like, do that every night. Yeah, the, a shared table situation like is was so common in restaurants for so long of like being like we're all gonna sit down and have the same meal. Like they could have yeah. been fucking pioneers. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. I I mean, obviously they they had it in them, but I mean, this is something that's probably a little bit more like stupid, like having worked in restaurant stuff, like seeing how they cooked the meal and how they yeah. didn't prep any of their ingredients beforehand. And then they yeah. served a course and they're like, okay, it's time to start chopping the vegetables for the, <laughs> for the main course. I was like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. You gotta have your mise en place ready people. Like, yeah, you they didn't even have anyone on staff to be the prep cook. And I get like a small business, maybe you do that yourself or whatever, but it felt like a, a piece was missing from the restaurant. Yeah, you could do, you could have a, a kitchen like that. You would just have to lay out your prep ahead of time. And there was part of me that like, right. even though I think at the end of the day, the f- story is about family, not necessarily the food. And of course, like in all cultures, food brings you back to family and human connection. But like for what this movie was, I wanted there to be more focus on the food. Like I sure. felt like yeah. the, the the eating scenes in the party scene were really what it was. Like that was the food in the movie with the exception of the initial scene of the, you know, not understanding what risotto was and like if you i felt like there could have been more like even in just like you you talk about like prepping up to the dish chopping up all your vegetables picking your herbs or whatever like that could have been more time for the brothers to interact with each other directly even if it was like more of those quiet moments in the kitchen where they're they're working together silently i felt like there was a lot of time spent on what i felt were weird shots like the initial 
filming of like Pascal's and like the strange Dutch angles that they were like filming everything at when they're getting out of cars and then the focus on other cars. I'm going to defend that approach just a tiny bit because it's a film and not a play. The primary tool that makes a film a film is the visuals. And so approaching it through the visuals is savvy filmmaking to a point. Now the execution of that may have been wanting, like the the out of placeness of the choices of shots or distracting from the larger narrative. Maybe they just didn't quite pull it off to a level that other elements of the film were working at. I, there were a lot of little things that just somehow felt out of place. And I don't know necessarily how to put it into words like when yeah. the meal started being um, served and then suddenly title cards came into it. That to me felt weird. I, I almost wished if they were doing that as a trope to to do it throughout the entire film. Like if that was gonna be a- Yeah, rather than meal. just just the meal. Cause it, it, it ended just as quickly as it came. It was really yeah. just one sequence of the dinner itself. And yeah. everything that led up to the dinner and every all of the conflict resolution after the dinner weren't done with that. And so, yeah, it, it was a bit of a like stylistic island within the film. I like that term, stylistic island. <laughs> I do. I do hear and feel like the tone was a bit wonky and there were so like probably my favorite scene in the whole film is the end. Yeah, mine too. And I found it as powerful as it was because they didn't need to do anything. The camera was still for like three minutes straight. Mm-hmm. It was a single shot, no movement, just watching Stanley Tucci prep eggs and him interacting with Mark Anthony waking up and like having this very bonded and gentle and empathetic response to his employee. Like he was taking care of him. And it wasn't a time for him to be an employee. It was just a time for like two humans to share breakfast and he was going to make him breakfast and he didn't need to do anything. And it was okay that he was asleep on the prep counter because, you know, he's, he's, they had a big night and everybody's tired and uh, there's no bullshit about it. And then when Mark Anthony leaves after Tony Shalhoub has joined them and they've been eating breakfast, the camera then moves to reframe, but that's it. That's the only like fancy or loud thing that happens in the whole sequence. And there's basically no dialogue. Segundo says a few words to Mark Anthony's character, but it's just like logistical stuff. And then all of the emotional content of the scene is just watching these men share space with each other. Yeah, I I liked it and was kind of disturbed by it because of how true to life that it felt. I can't tell you how many times, like growing up, there was like a huge conflict fight with lots of people screaming, and then there was no resolution. It's like there's an explosion, people walk away, and then like when you have your first meal together, you kind of act like nothing ever happened. And so then you don't ever have to address the problem. So in the end, I was wondering, like I, I was left thinking, okay, so, is this like them solemnly like realizing that they're moving apart, that like 
you know, they their their paths in life are going to diverge, or is this silently like resetting the cycle? Yeah, <laughs> Where I, they I play think this that out lack again. of yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think I think, and I I had read it as sort of like more the second, like look, we're in this together. And so we'll figure it out. Uh, we had this horrible, disastrous night, and we've overextended ourselves financially. But you're my brother, and so this is our lives. So whatever happens, we'll do it together, and we'll move forward together. And it's not—it doesn't involve the drama that happened last night. We don't need to get into a fist fight on the beach or whatever. Um, that was my read, but I also think there was sort of intentional ambiguity there that maybe, yeah, maybe this was both of them realizing that Segundo needs to go on his American adventure on his own and Primo needs to go back to Italy and uh, cook at his uncle's restaurant. Mm. Yeah. I, I, the, the fight that they have on the beach, I, there was, there was part of me that was like, why did Mini Driver have to get into a rear and go into the ocean? <laughs> I mean, sh- don't get me wrong. She looks stunning, but yeah. would her character really do that? Um, and then I did appreciate the fact that I think that the way that they fought with each other physically is how most men would fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, it wasn't. Not, it wasn't. I, my description as a fist fight is a little overblown. It was yeah. more of like a, a wrestle fight, wrestling and slapping each other and running <laughs> away and then back towards each other and throwing yeah. each other on the sand. Well, and like the only punches that they actually that any either of them actually threw was Primo punching the sand. Yeah. After they sort of done with the a direct tussle, he out of frustration just like punching the ground. I think that was great, and and. So I had been reading sort of through the whole film. I think I mentioned this earlier, the the aspect of like a, a craftsman, like the, the d- different types of craftspeople in the world and the conflict between business and creators and the arrogance of craftsmanship sometimes where you get mm. sort of lost in it to a point that you lose touch with reality. Yeah. And like Primo saying, if I let all those other things in, It'll kill the food, and I'd I'd rather die mm. than let it kill the food. I personally have felt a lot of that tension, and have over the last eight years or so mm. felt like I was too much of a primo and need to learn how to be more of a segundo. Mm. In terms of craftsmanship versus business, and the, the necessary tension between them. Well, really, um, what you need to learn how to be is a Pascal. Because then you're making money. Yeah. And living I mean, if, large. If, if, if I want to cut for Marvel, yeah, I got to I gotta be a Pascal. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> I, I, I yeah, have, if you could do that, ride that that money train <laughs> all the way through Disney. Woo-woo. <laughs> yeah. Um, a, a lot of my response, I think, to this movie... Uh, my, my initial reaction was, oh, my God, I love this. I can't believe I haven't seen it before or haven't even heard of it. Um, well, how did I miss it? Mm. The answer to that was I was 12. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when, the, when the movie came out, I was 12. Uh, but a lot of my response, I think, is cashed out in my relationship with Sabrina, a director that I've been working with mm-hmm. for the last 10 years or so or eight years or so. She is very good at 
appreciating and understanding and executing the importance of like networking skills within the film industry and understanding the needs of business and not giving up on creative and sort of the artistic side of things and and being being the artistic craftsman person like primo while still understanding the importance of somebody like pascal yeah a lot of our friendship has been about her trying to encourage me to be less primo Mm. so when he screams i'd rather the food die i'd rather myself die than the food die that hit a little like oh yeah that's that's the dangerous side of my own instincts yeah or like you can't feed yourself doing your thing even if you are the best in the world because talent is really just what opens the door but yeah the real skills of being a success in any industry particularly a creative industry is about the business end like the the other thing just is a is a minimum standard for everyone mm. that you're at a certain skill level but beyond that skill doesn't help you be successful yeah it's it's about reading reading people you know and yeah. and selling yourself and then being willing to kind of like h- hustle and learn along the way i mean that's the thing like you could you can you can study any craft from a from an academic standpoint but you're there's nothing that's really going to mimic getting experience and then that's also right. not to say like but even even like you can you can make the best film that's ever been made but if you don't market it nobody's going to watch it and so right uh, the only fulfillment you get out of having done that is personal pride it doesn't sustain you or promote your career to be that pig-headed no it doesn't (laughs) anyway that's that's my existential crisis of the past few years is oh um no i get that right because being being primo because like i i i in my career it's like i know how to cook i i don't i don't know how to i don't know how to run the books at all yeah in my training and it's like it's something that i could learn to do and I'm trying to learn how to do but it, it's it's hard because if it's not some you know to to try to tackle something that your financial security is wrapped up in and then also learn about something so important and try to do it concurrently with working you know it's right. like if you're trying to figure that out it it can be hard but I'm glad that you have like your own like you know, kind of like, I I don't know, it's not like necessarily like peer mentor in terms of networking and (laughs) and being willing to just a friend who uh, isn't afraid of kicking me in the ass when I'm being stupid. She's your Campbell Scott. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And I I also uh, should say, I am not so arrogant to think that I'm the editing version of primo like i'm not masterful at that level but in terms of like personal priorities i do lean a little too much in craft and talent and focusing on those rather than like telling a story that uh sells mm. you know that was mostly just so that i could edit that back in earlier because i don't want to sound arrogant <laughs> <laughs> that's okay 
one of the one of the things in my notes I wanted to mention when the dinner was over, the camera pans out of the kitchen across the table and like everybody's having these reactions of utter fulfillment. Yeah. Except for one woman who's crying. What's the matter? My mother was such a terrible cook. Oh yeah, I thought that that was cute. <laughs> I, I I like that because yeah. I think there are people that are aware that their their parents can't cook and they had like three things that they could make over and over again. But yeah. I also like the idea that somebody like all their life thought that their mom was a really good cook and then they had this <laughs> meal and they were like, oh wait, what I've been thinking about all my life as right. good food wasn't actually wasn't or, or just food. just understood food generally as sustenance and suddenly became aware of an entire world of art and magic and beauty mm. that they had spent whatever 25 or 30 years however old she was in complete ignorance of and then she got you know somebody suddenly introduced her to mozart mm. yeah <laughs> I really like I wanted to see how they made that suckling pig. I was oh like my God. if they're if they're making the timpano in those two other ovens, where's the oven that carries yeah. the suckling pig? Yeah, that kitchen pig? was too small for the amount of food well, they had. The thing that I was like amazed by was how much space they had in that kitchen. I've worked at in in restaurants where the kitchen is like half the size of that and there's like there's like, you know, yeah. eight no 10 15 people working in the space and like i'm like yeah. I, even if they were busy there would be no like if they were a busy restaurant if they had as many people as pascal's did coming in there would be no way they could keep up with it they need to they yeah. would need to hire more people yeah that was an they, insanely large kitchen for the kitchen staff to side well and the, like the 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 workspace and the equipment that they had mm wasn't using the grandeur of the space effectively like it was just open space yeah which i'm sure they, made it they easier only had to film the small ovens or whatever right yeah, so i think that's an i think that's an artifact of filmmaking right like you you know on friends uh the apartments that those people of that economic status lived in were completely unrealistic for New York. They were gigantic. Yeah, well, um, especially the ladies' right. apartment. Right. That looks like but it was I mean, part of the, a different... Even the men's, like a two-bedroom that size in New York, Yeah, that would be so expensive. But I, I, that's just a, a outgrowth of needing to move cameras, mm. giant cameras through a space. Yeah. And then still have some distance between the lens and the actor or whatever. Right, of course. Or like try to be able to have interesting angles that work in the filming. I I think that for me, like one, so this is like one of the scenes that I I think will forever stick in my memory of the of this movie. It's like it's kind of stupid, but (laughs) so the scene one of the the scene where Pascal and Segundo are talking in Pascal's office and Pascal is seated at his desk and Segundo (laughs) is seated on a couch and the on at, at, uh, on Pascal's desk is a, uh, an office lamp that 
in the way that it's positioned when they're filming the scene, while they're filming from Ian, uh, I was going to say Ian McKellen, Ian Holmes, <laughs> Ian Holmes um, view, the the um, the lamp cuts off half of the top of um, right. of Stanley Tucci's head, and like he he's framed by the um, the neck of the of the lamp and then when you sh it's shot from stanley tucci's perspective all you can see is ian holmes eyes you can't see his right. mouth at all right. and i it was like it 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 went on like that for a really long time and i was like okay this is interesting the only reason why you would make this choice is if it was an artistic one but i don't yeah. necessarily see how the that artistically adds to the scene and it goes on and on and on and then suddenly ian holm just shoves the light down so you would be able to see him and then it cuts stanley tucci off even more right so it was like this visual gag that was like in the same vein as things like naked gun 33 and a third you know what i mean like it was like from a spoof yeah. movie it was like so yeah, jarring it felt, it felt to me like super amateur filmmaking at first because i didn't understand where it was going yeah and i was like why the fuck would you let it block ian home <laughs> You have Ian Holm, <laughs> fucking legendary Ian Holm, and you're blocking his face, his mouth, while he's delivering dialogue. That's nuts. And then when he slaps it, I was like, oh, they were setting up this weird power move. <laughs> yeah, well, and the and <laughs> visual <laughs> gag, you know? Right, right. But it feels like... It felt like it was out of a Mel Brooks worth. movie. <laughs> right. Well, it, 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 the payoff didn't seem like it was worth the dramatic tension that... It caused. Oh, I actually you know. laughed out loud. <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I laughed as well, but it, it felt like it didn't feel like one of the goofy moments in the film. Like there were there were bits where they were very slapsticky, mm -hmm. but it, it it felt like it was more appropriate with like the scene where he's in the bank and the bank manager denies Segundo the loan. And we're meant to understand that this is like going to destroy this small business, but the, the banker doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. That scene for some reason was very powerful for me. I think probably because of the last year in the pandemic and like watching all the billionaires in the world increase their wealth while everyone else fell further down the economic ladder. Yeah. Um, that, that relationship hit a little special. Uh, but so it, it, it just felt like a weird tonal thing in that sequence where he slaps oh, the Oh, I totally agree. And I, I will say I was laughing, but that whole time. Um, you're not laughing was... the way that it's intended. You're laughing because it's like goofy out of nowhere. No, I surprised. I you. mean, I think it was intended as a joke. I, I, but like the thing that I'm, I have to just make sure that I'm saying this, that I was laughing out more because this is very shortly after Ian Holmes character is uh, introduced his accent was terrible i love him as an actor i think yeah. he's fabulous but that accent was terrible yeah. and even like stanley tucci i felt like dropped in and out of just sp speaking with a straight american accent and then having a like a very over-the-top italian one right which i think i think that was generally true of everybody except for the actual italian in the film and I don't mean like ethnically Italian. Yeah. I mean the, the Italian Italian. 
Is, yeah. Isabella Rossellini <laughs> was the only one whose accent didn't drop. Right, exactly. Yeah. And then maybe that the older guy, the barber. The barber. Right. But he only had like five lines. Yeah, still. <laughs> there were a lot of characters that were in the film that, that had less than that, you know? Yeah, so like Mark Mark Anthony probably had less lines than that, but he was also in the film basically like seventy percent of the time. Yeah, or or any of the like sideline um, characters that were in in attendance at the party, or actors who have since. I mean, I don't really remember what he was like at the time, but Liev Schreiber didn't have a single line. <laughs> he was just sort of there. Yeah, and I think that previous like his previous he maybe he had been in two or three films previous to this but um like i i think there were two previous like indie small indie films that were like breakouts okay. for him so um, he was on his way up yeah and i think the big breakout like in film was like the same year in scream yeah i don't i don't know what his big first thing was in my memory it was cotton weary on scream but I don't I can't remember if there was something before that or not. Right. I have to ask because I ask this, I think, every episode so far out of all the food. What what was getting to you? <laughs> um, it's a tough one. The pig and the roast quail, I think it was mm. uh, that they served as like second, third courses looked absolutely delicious and i was totally down but honest to be perfectly honest the thing that that struck me the most was the tempano mm. because it was such an odd and unique thing that when they when they showed them cooking it and prepping it i was like oh my god i can't wait to see what this is going to become <laughs> <laughs> and so i i kind of lament that this isn't like some classic italian dish that i can go out and find a version of. oh yeah no it it is one of it's a very labor intensive dish to make <laughs> um yeah i for me i there were certain scenes where i saw the food and i went oh i um and uh or parts of the the meal scene and um for me it was like having the big plate of um of artichokes come out and yeah. like whatever that the bird was um and yeah i wasn't sure if that was just small chickens or if that was quail right i i mean quail so would have been good. really really small but maybe it was something in right. between like some <laughs> other kind of pheasant or something if they had right. those in jersey in the 50s right that could happen no i'm just kidding well, um, i mean it feels like uh Whatever it was, it was like a special order thing that right. was a back home dish. Yeah. So who knows? It might have been pigeon. But um <laughs> Yeah. But the yes, the suckling pig did look really good. The um Well and all the like it was laid out on a bed of like fresh fruit. Yeah. It's just oh my god. Yeah. I um it it really it's it's interesting because <laughs> Like it made it really made me miss like get being able to do something like that like get together with a large group of people and just eat and enjoy that experience like communally, yeah. but 
also like there were certain things that really made me uncomfortable like whenever somebody fed someone else with their fingers and put their fingers in their mouth i was like no no don't yeah, do it especially like weird weird it happened in weird places yeah like, it did primo stuck his hand inside of pascal's mouth yes and it's like mm, i don't really buy this <laughs> yeah i know it's like that's very uh yeah if that that was it was weird because of that and it was weird because of like see like i don't know if i will ever like if we'll ever see people blowing out candles on cakes ever again you know what i mean yeah (laughs) but um yeah i uh i i i miss that experience and then like also the beginning scene not i'm not saying this in terms of like having an experience where you know i was a uh an uninitiated italian like food (laughs) eater but i have worked i worked i have gone to a restaurant in i think it was in new york and everybody all the servers there they made food like that kind of food that was um featured at paradise um the name of the restaurant in the movie and like having that service of like um like wanting like i or ordering risotto and then them coming by and like if i asked for something that was like not on the i asked for something like to be made a different way and they're like of course we can do that for you no problem and then they came by and they're like so would you like truffles shaved on your risotto and being like okay sure yeah yeah and then then at the end of the meal like being so generous and 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 like um giving you like a free limoncello or something like that which is a classic move at italian restaurants um so it 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 made me it made me miss um like just that kind of not I don't want to say over the top but just like effusive um yeah well, service. Just like the, like, yeah when like the small hole in the wall sort of restaurant I think paradise wanted to be bigger than it was but in reality it was just like a small thing where they only really ever had like six patrons at any given time it's so like being in a restaurant where you have that level of attention and care yeah. from the staff, but the quality of the food is so high. That absolutely is a kind of like nostalgic thing that that, yeah. that strikes in a weird way after a year of isolation. Yeah, and and like it 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 is really amazing how there are certain restaurants and people like that that work in restaurants that can immediately like make you feel like oh, we've been best friends for a while and you're probably my cousin or like my yeah. my great uncle or something in the case of these older Italian men. But like it it it, it really is amazing. I, it's it I think it was like uh, yesterday I went to it's like one of the first times post pandemic going to a restaurant and then dealing with like like, OK, how how often should I have the mask on and looking around and right. seeing what that is. And like, it's nice to be in a restaurant again, but it still doesn't feel like that full comforting 
experience yet and it's going to be interesting to see if you like we ever really get back to that yeah i think i think it probably feels like it'll never happen now i think it just takes time to shake off old circumstances right i hope in some respects that certain things stick around at least for a little while where like a hug and handshake culture gets diminished a little bit as a, as a extreme introvert who doesn't like to touch people this the pandemic has been bl- a blessing in that respect uh i mean it's horrible in a million respects i don't want to make light of things but i have enjoyed the social distancing expectation of the pandemic and i don't want things to go back a hundred percent to what it was yeah i I, you know i want people to be able to interact and be close to each other whatever but uh i just don't want them to touch me (laughs) (laughs) that's fair man (laughs) consent is real it's a thing i am for me i will say like an advantage of of um of uh wearing a mask is i don't have to even think about anyone ever like stopping me to tell me I should smile more. So I can just <laughs> yeah. like, you know, be yeah. fully inhabiting whatever feeling I'm feeling and it doesn't matter because <laughs> I have a mask on. Nobody's going <laughs> right. to comment on it. After the meal, the camera pans across the table and, you know, there's like all the, the remnants of the meal still left there. Mm-hmm. But there was just as much food on the table directly as there was on people's plates. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that that sort of level of like wanton carnage of the aftermath of a meal, I, I was amused by. Especially because like it didn't seem like that kind of dinner while it was happening. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I don't know. There were parts of it that I was like, uh, this this reads like um, dinner parties at my parents' house. <laughs> like yeah. in terms of like, I was like, oh, now I know I get it by the, this. Like I get this, like honestly, from, <laughs> from like just being like, anytime I try to cook a meal for people, I end up like cooking four times the amount of food or different kinds of dishes yeah. than what you... <laughs> need and like that's very ingrained in italian culture it's like if they if there's not leftovers then you didn't cook enough right (laughs) right i still have problems with groceries because i don't know how to shop for one person (laughs) neither do i (laughs) (laughs) yeah i make a toast Uh, no for me it's too early it's never too late So this is to tonight, the big night, when I bring you together my old friend, Louis Prima, with my two new friends. You guys are simply the best. Salute. Hey. Salute, salute, salute. Everybody, hype, hype, hype. If you (laughs) are able to, you should all check out Dan's, the film that he made, well, edited with... um, the previously mentioned director, Sabrina, um, it's a film called Lorelei, and he could tell you more about it. Yeah, so we shot it in uh, like October and November of 2018 and uh, cut it all of 2019. I'm not sure of the details exactly yet, but uh, distribution has been secured and it will become available for you to watch. That's awesome. Yeah, so... And it's the first film for... Myself as the editor, Sabrina, the director, and uh, stars 
uh, Liev's little brother, Pablo Schreiber, and uh, Jenna Malone, and a bunch of Portland local actors. And uh, I'm very proud of it. So yeah, uh, this summer, if you're looking for a, an R-rated family drama, mm-hmm. very niche, um, but if you're looking for, <laughs> for that... Starting on Friday, July 30th, Lorelai will be playing a limited theatrical run in Los Angeles, San Diego, Miami, Columbus, Detroit, Minneapolis, McMinneville, Oregon, North Bend, Oregon, Portland, Oregon, and Salem, Oregon. For a list of theaters in those cities that is going to be playing uh, the film, you can visit lorelei.love, that's L-O-R-E-L-E-I dot L-O-V-E. But the film will also be available um, video on demand uh, the same day. So Friday, July 30th, you can watch a video on demand, or if you live near one of those cities, you can go and see it in person. Ma sento allegro stamattina, ieri la rita mera, tanta pesci e peschetta, e ma sento te crieta. Uè, lo pesci dalla mera e le peschetta stamattina, io lo vengo a bomberchetta, e perché, e perché gli ne scusa, corrito femmina do lo paese. Aiutate la bancarella, ma ti ta villa dentro la funnella, e te la fridi dentro la patella. Uè, lo pesce calamere treglia, le paschette stamattina, lo venimmo a bomberchetta, e perché, e perché gli ne spusano.